Anthropodermic books demand that we wrestle with mortality and what happens when immortality is thrust upon us. And they have clarified my own moral vision as a librarian and caretaker of what remains of the past. All of these realizations came to me over time. I started off with simply a healthy dose of morbid curiosity. Welcome friends, my name is Patricia, or most people call me Patches, and I'm the host of the Morbidly Curious Book Club. This is a nonfiction-only book club diving into the darker, macabre parts of your library, and in this case, the books with questionable exteriors. We are discussing our January book, Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. Yes, you heard me correctly, books bound in human skin. What? Let's talk about it. Obviously, if you have not read this, please drop what you're doing and read it. Not just because it will be spoiled for you, but this was a really good book. Anthropodermic Bibliopagy has been a specter on the shelves of libraries, museums, and private collections for over a century. Human skin books, mostly made by 19th century Dr. Bibliophiles, are the only books that are controversial not for the ideas they contain, but for the physical makeup of the object itself. They repel and fascinate, and their very ordinary appearances mask the horror inherent in their creation. Anthropodermic books tell a complicated and uncomfortable tale about the development of clinical medicine and the doctoring class, and the worst of what can come from the collision of acquisitiveness in a distanced clinical gaze. Now that is an excerpt from the book, again, I cannot recommend it enough, and I am so fortunate to be joined by the author of Dark Archives, Megan Rosenblum. Megan's backstory is absolutely fascinating. Let's let's get into her bio. Okay, so Megan Rosenblum is Collection Strategies Librarian at UCLA Library in Los Angeles. Go Bruins. Megan served as a medical librarian for many years, where she developed a keen interest in the history of medicine and rare books. She was founding president of the Southern California Society for the History of Medicine and continues to serve on board. She was the co-founder and director of Death Salon, the event arm of the Order of the Good Death, and a proponent of the death positive movement. She leads a research team called the Anthropodermic Book Project that aims to find the historic and scientific truths behind the world's alleged books bound in human skin or anthropodermic bibliopagy and her best-selling debut book about this practice titled Dark Archives. This was a New York Times editor's choice, and it won the 2021 LAMPS Best Monograph Award. Now, LAMPS stands for Librarians, Archivists, and Museum Professionals in the History of the Health Sciences. In a former life, she was a journalist in Philadelphia and continues to write for both academic and non-academic publications. This month's Discord channel? I had to mute it. No way. I could not get people to stop talking. <laughs> really? Going just back and forth and back and forth. And I love when that happens. There's only been, an, before the Discord, there's only been one book club meeting that was two hours long because people just were going back and forth and back and forth. And I loved it. I want to stop really quickly because yeah. all I heard was the, the Discord chat and then it froze for a bit. And then I didn't hear anything else you said. So it could have been like, everyone thought it was garbage. And we just had so much fun talking of like coming up with different burns. 
And, no. um, and so that, so I didn't hear anything. And that, that's what I, my brain just decided, let's fill it in with the meanest thing. So like a Mad Lib? No, actually, <laughs> no, people, people are loving it. People are absolutely loving it. And it's creating such a great discussion, which I think is something you knew going into this too. It's just creating a discussion of ethics. Like what is, what is morally right in this situation? But we can ultimately get there when we get there. Because I asked my Instagram, I think you saw my Instagram, I was asking people to ask you questions. And a lot of them were, begin- let's just start at the beginning. Like, what made you interested in becoming a librarian? And then a couple of people were like, how do I get your job? You know, <laughs> so give us the give us the background of how we got to where we are now. Okay. Uh, yeah. So let's see how to condense that. I don't have, you know, a a morbid librarian origin story that's concise enough to really work, but I will try. Um, so I guess with writing and with life, I guess I would say that, you know, you accumulate all these interests and things over time. And Mm -hmm. then sometimes you find ways to indulge those or follow those either interests or skills or whatever, but it's, you can't really like, make a plot like plot this out i am going to be the human skin book lady that's not a thing that you that's not a specialization track in library school even as weird as i like to think i am i don't think anyone necessarily was like oh yeah that was her superlative in the high school yearbook was you know most likely to be human skin book lady um right yeah it's so i think that there were a lot of things at play in the background one was that i always wanted to be a writer and knew I was a writer from jump, right? Like I was writing and winning little elementary school, you know, writing awards and things. I have distinct memories of doing, of writing whole books, AKA, you know, 16 handwritten pages. Um, have you, have you gone back and read some of those? Um, the, so I really wish I had that spiral notebook that I remember. <laughs> like I was like, I'm almost done. I'm like 16 pages in, you know? Um, I wish I still had that. But what I do have, which I really enjoyed, and it reminds me, it's from the same age that my child is now. And it reminds me so much of her that it is really funny to me. Oh. Because I was going to, I was always a, you know, big reader, big writer. Um and kind of maybe advanced for my age on that level. Mm-hmm. And in first grade, my family outside of outside of Philadelphia took me to um, uh, Disney World. Like I, I went with my grandmother and my cousin or something. And the school said you can go, just you know, do a travel journal. So I actually have that journal right my my mom kept it in a drawer for years and one time when I was visiting home I was like oh man I gotta get this so it's like me talking about things I did every day and Mm -hmm. at Disney World I was talking about basically the food which is totally what my kid would do too so it's like we got to eat at this restaurant we never went to restaurants like my family grew up really, you know, working class and stuff like that. And going to a restaurant was a big deal and not something we ever did. And sure. if we went on vacation, we would like bring all the food with us, you know, and right. so going, taking an airplane and going to restaurants to eat was huge. And 
way bigger deal to me than Mickey and stuff, which is funny. Oh, yeah. The mouse? I don't know. I had great pancakes, though. (laughs) Oh, my. I cannot believe you just said pancakes because that's exactly what I was going to say. So I literally (laughs) said, we went to this fancy place called the International House of Pancakes. Oh, my God. It's like. Wow. P.A. And I spelled it P-A-N-K-A-K-E-S because that's how Tasty Cake spells Tasty Cake with taste. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm from the Philadelphia area and that's like, you know, my brain was like, Tasty Cake, Pancake, K-A-K. That's fine. That's correct. You yeah. know, we'll take it. Anyway, so then Human Skin Books is like uh, an obvious <laughs> line that that exists. No, it, it was really about, um, you know, so I was a writer, but I was thinking fiction, writing and stuff like that. And then in around middle school, I just kind of decided that I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to be a journalist and started getting into, you know, newspaper, did my high school paper, blah, 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 mm-hmm. stuff. and then went to journalism school as an undergrad. And then, um, I went to an undergrad where you have like, it's a co-op program where you do six months of actual work and then six months of school back and forth. And your undergrad is five years long Um, because what I was told, which was actually pretty decent advice at the time was that if you want to be a journalist, the only thing that really matters is the work that you write and get published, right? You can learn how to be a journalist like to me it seemed like I learned things in college but the important thing was graduating with a thing full of clips which back Mm -hmm. in the ancient times when I was doing it were (laughs) were printed um you know I have a binder of them um Mm -hmm. so I got hired uh you know I started as an intern and then got hired and then did morning edition as a production assistant and reporter in it, at WHYY in Philadelphia, the NPR station where Terry Gross is and stuff like that. Wow. So I was doing that and I was like 19 years old, waking up at three oh, in yeah. the morning, doing morning news and then going to class or then, do, you know, so. Yeah, was, that, you know, mm. yeah, <laughs> that sounds a little torturous. <laughs> that's, the sleep debt will never be repaid. Let's put it that yeah. way. I, I have no idea how I ever did that. Um, so I just thought I was going to be a journalist, and it broke my heart to leave there. But they would, they people would leave these full time reporter positions that happened during non vampire hours, mm-hmm. and I was already doing the work for less money, and like they would not hire <laughs> anybody to fill the full time job, and I didn't have benefits and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. It was, this is ridiculous. And I I just kind of couldn't take it anymore. And a friend was leaving a administrative assistant job. And so I went there because it was like twice as much money for doing almost nothing compared to the breakneck, you know, pace of doing. Um, so, and that was in publishing. So that was kind of my entry into publishing, but I went there because they said they would do tuition reimbursement for things like library school. And I talked to librarians, done stories about librarians in the Patriot Act. This ages me specifically. Uh, It's like right around, like right after 9-11. Right. Um, And so I thought, oh, librarians, like they 
kind of seem like my people, you know, mm -hmm. we have similar values. And it felt like the skill set of being a librarian and being a journalist were similar, except the ego factor was a lot more palatable to me. Yeah. Like, here, this book is brought to you by me. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It's more just, okay, I need to know a little bit about a lot. Yeah. Enough to be able to find something for someone that people are looking for or explain something that's hard in a way people could understand. And so, yeah, so like that's that's how I eventually got my library degree and moved out to LA. You kind of take the upper or I have always tried to find the opportunities for things that interested me in the place that I land, you know, mm -hmm. kind of working class scrappy kid who always ended up in places that she felt like she shouldn't have been allowed to be, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was interested in rare books. I didn't really have a way to learn about them or be around them, except then the job I got was at a medical library. And that's where the medical, our rare books, there were medical rare books. So then I started learning about history of medicine because of that. That is so cool. Like I, you know, I was always just tangentially interested in like science but in a super vague way mm -hmm. um you know i learned about it on the job basically and then while learning about it and you know teaming up with all the death positive people and stuff and curating events for the order of the good death called death salon meeting people learning about history of medicine that way and you know how it relates to death and dead bodies and stuff like that then these human skin book rumor things, I started hearing them. And it just so happened to be the same time when that first Harvard book got tested. Mm -hmm. And I met Daniel Kirby, the chemist who did the test while I was doing right. some research on a potential different book that never happened. We started comparing notes. And the next thing you know, it was like, off to the races. But it yeah. was such a weird, I mean... I tried to make that succinct. I know it wasn't, but it could have been a way longer story. Even than that, that was an attempt made because as I kind of try to say, like things happen, you meet people, mm -hmm. you make connections. And then all of a sudden when I'm writing this book, now I'm drawing on every single thing that ever happened to me, basically. Right. You know, um, things about my mom uh, growing up, things about like, my journalism skills to go out and interview these people and knowing, you know, how to do that and how to turn it into something. The research skills I developed as a librarian, the subject knowledge that I've learned both about history of the book and history of medicine over the years, all of those things kind of went into the hopper and came out in this thing. This is what we have now. Yeah. So the, so the job, my job isn't really like, Oh, you're, Again, I'm not, I don't even work in special collections specifically or anything, but it was more at an academic library. If you have a librarian job, a lot of times they kind of treat you either specifically or somewhat like a faculty member where you have your job responsibilities, your teaching or whatever it is. And then you also have research interests, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so this was tolerated, <laughs> yeah. like this interest was tolerated and 
encouraged on a certain level because there was an expectation for you to conduct research of some kind. Now, did anyone at either institution expect me to go down this path? No, I don't think so. But it was allowable, I guess. Well, somebody had to. It sounds like somebody had to, though. I mean, it, not to say you were alone in this, because of course you were not, but it did, it did seem like for a little while there that you were like, come on, guys, we have books bound in human skin. Why aren't we doing anything about this? Yeah, it's so interesting how some people, when I talk to them about it, some people say, oh, well, this sounds like an article. And I'm like, this, I've read many articles about this, right? They're like, you look through these old academic kind of there are journals about book collecting about rare books and things that have very stodgy sounding names to our ears today like academy bookman and it's like oh tut tut i have this do i have a story for you about these these macabre books and then they just tell you a bunch of rumors Mm-hmm. right it's like oh and and the worst were the coded ones where it's like we all know a certain so-and-so as a blah blah i'm like no i don't it's like a hundred <laughs> years later <laughs> you don't know who so-and-so is why are you doing this right <laughs> so i'm sure there are a lot of things that i fully just missed because you missed the context because it's not available to you but if you're reading out at the time you probably would have known who so and so was with a penchant for a blah 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 i read this article yes i've read it many times over there's dozens of them um but i just didn't believe that that was enough and but i also wasn't sure if there was any real way to get backstory on some of these right but then also, why does anyone care? Yeah. Then there was a timeliness hook of, oh, we now, through the scientific testing, can now know something that was literally unknowable before. That rang my little journalist bell of, this is a, t- you know, <laughs> there's a timeliness thing, there's a thing that happened, and it just mm-hmm. happened. And so that, get, like, put my spidey senses, like, going. And then I really, I guess I just was like, well, I'll just start digging and see what happened. You know, I'll do my best to identify the things that I can. And every time we learn something new about a book by testing it, it throws all the rest of the surrounding evidence into a different light, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you find out something's fake, especially, then you're like, who faked this? Did they do it on purpose? Did they blah, blah, blah? And a monetary gain. Yeah. And there are so many times in the book where, you know, someone, an editor or something reading it would have been like, well, do you want to venture a guess as to what happened here? Before? I'm like, no, I don't like, you know, I don't want people to then quote me and be like, well, Megan thinks it's this. It's like, I only did that a few times and very judiciously, I felt like. Yeah. But I thought it was sometimes enough to, just cop to when we didn't know something or to talk about the questions that it made me think of that were unanswerable at the time. I think that's more useful because what if someone down the line decides, uncovers a new way of looking at these books, a new method, uh, a new way of learning about some backstory of something or the information about a certain individual 
And then they're able to like fill in those gaps. They have the basis of what I did, but no one had ever really put them together in this way. And um, my agent, who is brilliant, she's also the agent of like Caitlin Doty and Colin Dickey. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I really was. I feel like I got really lucky with her. I'm even repping uh, her her literary agent on my agency on my today. So Anna Sproul Latimer at Neon Literary, thank you. Uh, (laughs) But one of the things that she said was that when you're writing about weird stuff, so I feel like this group may be interested to hear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it. (laughs) Down the line, professional advice. When you're writing about weird stuff, you have your weird niche and your thing that you're interested in. You do research about it. If you, you can absolutely publish a book that's just like, here's a weird thing, right? And, but that, like, the audience for that or the publishing interest for that is going to be narrow. But Mm -hmm. if you're able to, in good faith and with, like, you know, something to grab onto it, tie it to something that anyone could kind of see is relevant to their lives in some way or tells us something about ourselves about society sure, or yeah, yeah yeah I can then see that. that's when it can become like a commercial book that's when it can be published on a big publisher and have a wider audience for it can't guarantee people are going to care but it's there is a difference there right like in terms of the potential reach it can have and it mm-hmm. should be speaking to something human in everybody, regardless of where where your background is that you're bringing to that your interest in the book, right? Yeah. And yeah. so a lot of our work together, when I was putting together that the proposal, it's like, well, what is it? Why do I care? Why do I care about this? It's this is weird is not enough, basically. And then I remember having this conversation. I was like, all right, do not hang up on me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Michelle Foucault. And she's like, I'm listening. And I like went off on this whole thing about the clinical gaze, which I had only really encountered because at, I was doing a death salon event at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which is features prominently in this book. And the former like executive director guy, whatever, Robert Hicks did a presentation about the clinical gaze, like how doctors look at the specimens in the jars and the book. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, like the male gaze and what yeah. happened like the clinical gaze? And I was I was like, this is it. And then I remember reading him and being like, please, can I have your, you know, notes? Like, tell me more. Like, you just unlock something for me that I've been trying to articulate and I just couldn't find the words. Yeah. And then he's like, well, actually, I took it from Michelle and that was that, right? Then putting yourself, like, in conversation one way or another or, like, you know, taking things in from other people that will then help you, like, forge that connection to tie it to a wider thing because we're all patients. We all have bodies. We all have interactions with the medical profession one way or another. Um, And so... That also helped me really come to it from a place of like collective humanity, right? Instead of who's this freakish thing? Yeah, all these freak, you know. 
I didn't want it to seem glib or disrespectful and like trying to understand how the thing could have ever come across, I guess. Some of the questions that we were getting on Instagram too were about that as well. And, you know, I do want to tie back to, is it Muter? Muter Museum? Yeah, yeah, Muter. Like, yeah, like mother in uh, German, I think it's uh, Muter. That's, That's kind of where this started too, where you saw the wallet. Now, at first, this was just rumors, right? You were saying that you were just kind of hearing about these books bound in human skin. And then you finally saw the wallet, which in a footnote, I think you said, wound up not even being human. So you're like, okay, you know, I really got to get to the bottom of this because some of these are false. Yeah. So there was a wallet and then a bunch of books lined up and they all had their covers closed and they were all together. And in that room, they were like the most boring possible looking thing you could put in a case, right? It's just like a case full of brown squares. I mean, yeah. Who cares? And um, if you didn't ha- read the th- note, then you would just, your eyes would just gloss right by. I mean, you're in the room with all of these just literally hard to believe actual thing, you know, things yeah. all around you. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my first encounter ever seeing them in real life. And um, I-, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just so this uncanny kind of thing where, you know, I I often say it's sort of like when you see serial killers' neighbors get interviewed and they're like, oh, he seemed like a nice guy, kept to himself, you know, blah, 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 just a quiet, normal guy or whatever. And it's, to me, this was like the object version of that where it was so unassuming looking. And yeah. then the backstory behind it, like, what it was was so horrific and unbelievable. And I was like, do people know about this? And then when I was traveling around with another ID in mind, I just put it on my list of things to ask about at different libraries. Like, oh, do you guys have any human skin books or anything? And I couldn't believe how many places said yes. Or, oh, I think we might have had one, or, oh, I think we have a couple, or whatever. And it was also just very casual. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. The campus tour guides say things about them that we might have one. I don't know. I've never, like, tied it to a specific book or whatever. But, yeah, it just kept coming. I couldn't believe how many times people would actually respond to that, like, question. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really, I was like, there's something more here. I had also, like... As a side note, I didn't put this in the book, but I think I did mention the book, this book called uh, Dissection, um, and it was photo dissection table photos, like early photos of anatomy classes. Yes, I think you did mention that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and so reading that book and looking at these images, I got the impression that the authors, one of whom used to work at the Dittrich Medical Museum in like Cleveland that they kind of did the same thing where they sort of asked around to say, oh, to medical school libraries and archives, like, oh, do you guys have any like old photos of people doing these anatomy classes? And they'd be like, oh yeah, we don't bring them out because they're kind of gross people out or they, they're kind of distasteful, but yeah, we have them. And that was sort of how that kind of came together. Right. Wow. And so I realized, oh, I'm in these, I'm in this world. I can do this. Like mm-hmm. I know these people individually and stuff so it's 
I can ask the, I mean, anyone can ask, but I felt more empowered about asking about something that maybe people wouldn't want to talk about. Yeah. Interesting, too, how one, the the museum or the librarians, the people that would work at these places really either did not want to talk about it or they didn't even really want it on display. Like, they, I remember one part of the book where somebody was like, damn, why... Why is are so many people interested in this book? Like, there's so many other things to see. <laughs> yeah. Why is this the thing? And I think you're right. It's just, it's something so out of the ordinary. But it was interesting, too, your first reaction as well when you saw this. You were like, oh, this has to be from World War II. So it was it was fascinating what people's initial reactions were to this. But why do you think, why do you think people would not, first of all, we talked about the monetary value potentially of why people would want to lie about the books found in human skin, but why don't you think people would want to showcase this a little bit more in their museums or in their libraries or anything? Because that's a, I mean, as you, you've done your research and you've tested these books, there's not a lot out there. So they have something on their, I mean, that we know of, they have something on their hands that's remarkable. Why wouldn't they want to talk about that more, you think? Right. I mean, so I guess when I first started talking to folks and trying to convince some places to test that were maybe a little more on the reticent side, I mean, the name of this uh, book club, Morbidly Curious, I just kind of said, I'm interested. I feel like other people will be interested. How could you not want to know? Like in the spirit of scientific inquiry and historical inquiry, you would think. But I think back then... Yes, now even more so that the fear of what people will do with the information when they get it, it is too much risk for institutions, right? Mm -hmm. And so they feel like it's going to be bad press if we find out that this book is real, if we never talk about it. Like, so it's not like I somehow knew about these books and no one else knew about them and they were super secret buried under the Vatican or something and then I just happened to know about them. It I would find references to the books in other places, right? Yeah. Online, in old catalogs, like rare book catalogs or old uh, writing, writing bits and stuff like that. But like, so it's not like they were trying to hide it in that way. They weren't trying to draw attention to it either. And also Harvard got really raked over the coals about this whole thing. Yes. Yeah, you did go into that a little bit. That's not even done. I mean, they're still having controversy about the fact that they have this book. There's still calls to bury the book and things like that. And I think that no one wants to invite that to their door. You know, (laughs) no one wants to then suddenly have to deal with it um Mm -hmm. and so they would rather just not no not draw attention to it i like i can sympathize with with that right you know it's not my personal inclination but i feel like a lot of folks are not thinking about their personal inclinations they're thinking about what's best for their institution and you know what they have to do so i feel like i get why people wouldn't want to do it is all i'm saying People earnestly want to do the right thing. They want to be on the right side of history. They want to feel like they're making the most ethical choice and hold others accountable for that. Mm -hmm. But they also 
not being experts and just encountering hearing about it, you make certain associations immediately, right? That might that are might not turn out to be true. But they also people conflate issues around say a human skin book from the 19th century with issues of repatriation in museums because it's understandable that those two things would go together in your mind but they don't they're not the same thing, right? Like to the extent we can know about the individuals, they're usually local individuals, right? They're not being repatriated to another country. They weren't taken from another country and put into this library, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we can't know anything at all about it, but historically when when someone dies and is anatomized and that's where they got the skin, they, they didn't travel with the, these dead body wow. parts. There was no way to preserve them in that way. Um, so they stayed local. That's, that was the way it happened. Um, and there's no scientific way for us at this current time to know what somebody's say race or ethnicity or ancestry was by testing it retroactively. So we can't know these things, right? So something like, oh, that it should be buried respectfully. Well, who says what's respectful what would have been respectful to that person? We don't know. Like, mm-hmm. what if what if they were from a a group where burying in general is not respectful? <laughs> you know, there's there's like so many other things we can't. Some of these things happened historically for a lot of reasons, which I try to get into in the book. Like the reasons why I think they may have like been created. The reasons why you didn't hear like a huge uproars like people's access to the information that it was even happening or their ability to publish like dissent or anything like that not really accessible that doesn't mean that people would have been like team human skin book right but they probably just didn't really know about it and these things that we still have these books that are 200 years old or whatever are evidence yeah. They're historical evidence. They help us learn about a thing that happened. So to me, they take on a different veil, like like valence or whatever. They're like a different kind of thing now. It took me a whole book to be able to really tease that argument out in a way that thankfully my readers seem to get, right? Mm-hmm. They seem to get where I'm coming from. You know, someone hearing about it in a newspaper whatever they go to their campus is like, I'm not going to give money to your you know, library. If you're over here, <laughs> you know, with this and, you know, the comments online and whatever. I mean, it's just, it makes it very hard to transmit nuance and context. Sure. So yeah. why open that can of worms? Like I can see why you wouldn't want to, I guess. <laughs> Well, you said something really great, too, in the book early on where you said artifacts of abominable acts have research value, which I really thought was interesting because it's true. I mean, it's true. And also you said later on in the book, we can't go back in time and change this. What we have now is this piece of history. And if it's cared for librarians like yourself, then it will be handled as such. And instead of, you know, like you're saying, too, and we don't know. We don't know the history of this person, the religion of this person. We don't know anything to suddenly make assumptions now that they would prefer to be buried this way, tossed that way, put in this place. And all we can do is just our best and educate and learn and 
find the next one. Yeah, I mean, so I think that all we can do is stand in the place that we are historically and the knowledge that we have, try to do our level best to do the right thing. And my caveat is always don't do something that can't be undone unless you're so sure about it. Because I just think that people, it's hard for people to see outside of their own perspectives. I mean, it blew my mind when I found out that medical consent was not a thing for until relatively recently when we look at it as the only thing. And also the law doesn't even agree with us on that, right? (laughs) Which is why, you know, people are making diamonds and vinyl records and stuff out of cremated remains. Uh, I didn't know about that one. That one was new to me. You know, this is not, um, there may be enthusiastic consent, but the law is not talking about enthusiastic consent you know what I mean just because you're consenting doesn't mean the law also finds it legal right there's plenty of things that people consent to that aren't legal and so many times I talk to people about those things and that was uh, the person from Wake Forest uh, Tanya Marsh uh, Tanya Marsh teaches about her book is called like the law of human remains. And she talks about how it's state by state. And some of it is super vague because it says things about community standards. Like don't do something to a corpse that's outside of community standards. Well, who's community? (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't remember getting a vote, like getting like a ballot (laughs) in the mail. It's like, do you think it's okay to turn this corpse into a coral reef? It's like a town hall meeting, like suddenly like you raise your hand if you're okay with it and Yeah. Circle yes or no. Okay, yeah. now we're okay with coral reef burial. Mm-hmm. No, like so yeah, I just think that that's to me I found find that really interesting. For some folks, the parts that I get into about the legality and all this stuff, they're like, yeah. eh, I sort of skipped over that stuff, whatever. But I I geeked out hard on that because I <laughs> you know that's important. That's a huge part of this. I think so, because people make assumptions. Like, understandably, you hear about something, you make connections, and you assume certain things, but so much of these things are not assumable. Right. Um, and a lot of things are really newer than you think, or whatever. <laughs> and those are the places where I always felt the most excited about sharing. Mm-hmm. Like, did you know that, you know... We are both those people at the party. Oh, my gosh. You're like, hey, so, fun fact. I did I, I did that today about honey, uh, honeybee uh, democracy. That, that bees... Yeah, I was so like, I was in this book. <laughs> the other parents at the, at the school library, I was like, I was listening to this book, and honeybees... Um, they they hold democratic debates and votes about where the hive is going to move, and they're like, okay, okay. <laughs> anyway, it's like, all right, ladies. So, <laughs> well, people now know me too as the woman with the book club, and I love my partner plays travel softball, and I always bring a book with me, and every time the umpire asks me what I'm reading, it's always for the book club. So I have taught some umpires about the black death (laughs) like well do i lie or do i just all right i'm just gonna tell you the truth 
anything post-mortem consent to reminds me, and of course the name escapes me, I should have looked it up before, the German guy who ate his partner, but his partner, like, consented to it. Oh, yeah. I don't remember like, the guy's name, but I do remember that situation. That's exactly. You can't do like, that, man. Well, it was okay. It's like, yeah. I don't think it's really okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, being that person at the party, that's always a thing where people are like, oh, you know, similar situation at my kid's school. She's first grader. It's like, oh, you wrote a book? Is it a kid's book? I'm like, no. What's it about? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> ask me in like 17 years please yeah I, I i always take this deep breath and i say okay mm-hmm. this is the part of the conversation it usually goes one of two ways the one mm-hmm. is i am very fascinated by that please tell me everything and and we just derailed the conversation now we're talking about me and the other one is i'm going to go walk away now there's kind of no in between but also on the vein of true crime too i thought this part was super interesting which i really wanted to talk to the book club members about chapter seven the post-mortem travels of william quarter this was fascinating a preacher drew a crowd of nearly five thousand onlookers as he decried the heinous acts of quarter who already broke the new moniker quarter the murderer in town gossip and folk song and throngs of visitors were also entertained by a camera obscura and various impromptu plays depicting the crimes in grisly detail. And the mother had to threaten the playwrights over use of her son's name. He hadn't even gone to trial yet. And I'm like, oh my god, this happens still. Where books and documentaries and stuff comes out about people before they even had a chance. Oh, <laughs> they yeah. Didn't to trial or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's. Um like how modern that felt was so shocking to me. And when I went to the Moises Hall museum, which, Oh my gosh, for a morbid person, like, again, it, it's like this beautiful building and you just walk in, you're like, what is happening in here? Cause it's just, like <laughs> yeah. a town, it's just a town museum, but everything in it is like full of horrors. And you're like, what is happening? Um, I was like, this is incredible. Um, yeah. And they have this whole corner of William Quarter, like, murderabilia, where it's like, here is a small, here is a piece of the red barn. Here's the mole spud that they used to, wow. like, st- that her dad actually accidentally stabbed through her body. And, all this, and I'm just like, oh, my God. It's <laughs> just, like, shocking. Um, I mean, you know, the most shocking thing is probably his scalp with his ear still attached next to the book. That's... Ooh. That that's you don't see an ear on a shelf every day. Was that person that came to claim the remains legitimate? Was that ever tested? So I uh, uh, that person wrote a little like wrote a book about the murders and stuff, which was actually kind of hard for me to find. It was definitely like a probably self published kind mm-hmm. of situation. So the museum in London, all the all the physical choices and stuff. It's like we have his skeleton. Mm-hmm. And it used to be in the hospital and the nurses would dance with it and do all these things. And then it was oh, like, <laughs> we kept the skeleton in the museum. And then over time, your perspective on it changes. It's like, okay, there's nothing actually special about the skeleton, just the fact that it belonged to this murderer, right? Right. And then the museum decides, is this something that 
we want to even like display does anyone care that it belongs to this guy and doesn't it feel a little like lurid and inappropriate for a medical museum to be displaying it because of its association with a like horrible previous crime right right uh like this isn't a crime museum it's a medical museum there's nothing medically interesting about this dude right fair enough um, and so then when a family member, alleged family member comes to call and says they want to bury the, the you know, bury quarter, they say, okay, but they didn't want to just hand over what has, what is a museum object, right? Yeah. It's an so artifact, they yeah. cremated his skeleton and gave her the cremated remains. So they like made a disposition choice, right? And mm-hmm. gave it to her. And then she felt emboldened by this, right? As you might. And then we're like, well, there are other body parts of my ancestor I can collect and we can put them all together, which again makes total sense, right? Like, why would you stop there if you already mm-hmm. got the, the skeleton? It's like, oh, I'm just going to do that and not worry about his ear and his skin book and stuff like that. Yeah, you're going to want to get everything and put them all together in a grave, right? Yeah. So all of these choices... As weird as it sounds to be saying these words out of my mouth, they all make sense if you put yourself in the perspective of this person trying to make the what they say is the best choice, right? Sure. And so then they go to Moises Hall, and Moises Hall is like, well, you are related to William Corder through marriage, and you are now divorced from that person, so you're basically not related, right? <laughs> like, you're... Kind of not really that closely related. You had an affiliate affiliation with his family at some point in time. Right. But we have people who live in town who are way more closely related to him. And oh, they are fine okay. with all of his stuff being here. So no thank you. We're going to keep him. And, you know, the guy from The Welcome says like i feel f- i feel good about what we did. I feel like we did the right thing at the time with the like with with the information we had and what we did with the thing that was under our care and what it meant to us and then i feel like it is totally also fine and defensible for moises hall to have a completely different response mm-hmm. and so that is the kind of answer that is extremely unsatisfying for people who really want things to be cut and dried to be like this is right this is wrong like there was a lot going on there (laughs) there's a lot going on there and that was part of the reason why i really wanted to give quarter his own chapter absolutely because of all the things that happened to this dude after he died um i just found it really fascinating that you know he's like scattered all over the place and people are doing all sorts of stuff to him and it also brings back the legality discussion of like okay and i think it was that chapter Correct me if I'm wrong, where you were like, well, this part is technically a remain, so that goes that direction, but this part is not part of his remain, so that goes in that direction, and that's when things get really murky. Yeah, because there's this uh, idea in um, the UK, I believe. Oh, right. They had completely different, that and France have like completely different laws. Yeah, they have completely different laws, and Scotland is more strict than the UK, and France is even more strict than them. And it's about application of skill is so when you have museum objects that include hair or a finger bone that's tied into a 
vest or so you know what I mean I mean there are a lot of things from different cultures and stuff where they may exist in a museum and then at what point is the thing uh artifact and when is it a body and so the difference there is seen as the application of skill they called it like did a human take like use human remains as material for artwork as opposed to actual, like, like what you would perceive of as a dead body. God, that's murky. Okay. I know. And then there's an age thing, too, where it's like the time period is very different. These bodies come from an interesting window of time, where if it's past, a, uh, I want to say it was like 300 years or so, or 500 years, then even maybe identifying the group of people that some their remains came from becomes mm-hmm. more complicated. And if they're freshly dead, like in the last hundred years, there's all these laws in place, and, you know. And then there's this sort of middle area of the time period um, that it makes it a lot harder to pick from. And then you know, right. there are certain places like the anatomy museums in Edinburgh and stuff that legally got a like pass. They were like, well, this existed before these laws came into place and we're just going to be okay with, with this place and how it was, you know, and then we're not going to institute the rules for this place that you have to show provenance and all these things for every single object because it would be impossible. And so it's okay. Like it's for medical science and it's okay or whatever, you know? Um, But yeah, I mean, people's read on those laws and how they feel about them and stuff. I'm sure it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of places that, yeah, that like are facing backlash or challenges about different things. Um, And what I want to be clear about is that, you know, what I said before about people coming with things like repatriation and whatever in a context where it doesn't make sense. But I am fully in favor of repatriation context in which it does. Right. So it's like, we know that this human remain in this place comes from these people and they want it back by Absolutely. all means. Yeah. You know? But that's a lot of things in that beginning of the sentence to get to the place of, yeah, yes, we can do this, right? I think it was that same chapter where you started going into one of my favorite little niche parts of history, uh, which was the Anatomy Act. How was it? Doing all this research for the Anatomy Act and talking about it and how corpses were hard to come by mm-hmm. to now present day with you taking a tour of the USC anatomy class and then having this like realization that you want to donate your body at some point, which is something that's ever since I found out about this and learned about Caitlin Doty and like all these options, I was like, that sounds amazing. Having this like agency to to be where we are now like at the usc anatomy class it it was so awesome and just such a full circle kind of moment where i was like working at usc and then i spend years like doing all this research and then i end up back being able to observe a class like i got to observe a class it's not something that regular you can't come in off the street even as like a writer necessarily and get that i was medical faculty at this place the equivalent of tenured faculty 
on the health sciences campus at the medical school. I taught medical student, you know, it's mm-hmm. so it was even then I still felt like it was like an ask, but I told them exactly what I was doing and all that. And they were very welcoming to me, but it's not something that everyone gets to do. It's a huge perspective shift to be in a room full of dead bodies. If you've never <laughs> done that, um, every single thing that's happening, you know, how loud it is. You've got this air suction going, the smells, everyone's talking because they're studying and they're talking to each other in groups or whatever. But also just by that point in that semester, I was there pregnant and being like, I hope it's okay. I'm even in this room for yeah. with the fumes and stuff, but it wasn't there that long. Um, it, it was just still, it was like a really interesting kind of experience. Wait, was I pregnant? No, it was after. It was after, but right after. It was like right after I got back. I, but I was thinking about <laughs> all these things at the same time, like thinking about my, what my own body had been through and all the weird, like weirdness of seeing that yeah. body taken apart and all this stuff and my recent experiences with that yeah it was so interesting like the anatomy laws and things that people have to do to learn working in a medical library for so long people sometimes vendors or people would say things like oh we have this new 3d full body tool we want to sell you for for many thousands of dollars and you can totally dissect organs and everything, you know, virtually and blah, blah, blah. And you, you don't even, like, need a corpse or whatever. <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't want my doctor's first cut to be on a body to be on my living body. Right. <laughs> Personally, yeah. this is the closest thing. You know, hey, use the 3D modeling. Don't get me wrong. That's great. Like dig in, yeah. have a great time, learn as much in through as many modalities as you feel are are useful to you. But like, you got to be comfortable with bodies if you're gonna, especially if you're gonna be a surgeon. But in general, I think it's a good idea to you know not to make sure that you can you can take it, like you can hack it and be around bodies. Yeah. Uh, that are doing gross things because everybody's body does gross things, especially yeah. in the doctor's office or whatever. So I, I don't know. I, f- I could see how important it was. I could see the way the students were interacting with it, um, that they were very respectful, that they were learning a ton and that mm-hmm. is an experience you can't get in another way. So I just saw how important it was. Um, and with the, you know, kind of ceremony they do at the end of the year, that's sort of a way to do what I said needs to happen, which is like bringing people back in touch with their own humanity, their own feelings about all of it to sort of process that so that they're not just blithe about it in the way that some of these doctors ended up being, um, that they felt like, oh, what? I'm going to throw this piece of skin in the trash anyway with all the rest of the stuff. Who cares if I keep it? Like, what does that matter? It's just, like, garbage. That was actually one of my questions in the Discord earlier, too. I was like, what was he planning on? Was he, what was the intention immediately bookbinding? Like, what was the point of just taking this piece of yeah, skin? Yeah, yeah, I think it was because books 
were so- seen as something that a gentleman doctor would collect books. Um, there, you know, there are whole societies of doctor book collectors around the U.S., around the U.K., whatever. It was seen as a thing that smart doctor people with money did. It's like collecting nice books, you know. Um, right. You can't really see this, but in this shelf behind me, there's a whole set of these like history, you know, famous works in the history of medicine that are like leather with a gilding on them and stuff. They sold them as sets for like mid-century doctors because it was seen as like a a respect for your history, but also they have to look nice. And there is this sort of thing about collecting books, you know, did make sense in a certain way if you didn't have any compunction about where you were getting it. So the biggest debate, I don't even want to call it a debate. I want to call it a discussion Mm -hmm. between some of the book club members so far. We discussed this book later on in the month, but like I said, people are very active in our discord right now is the word intent and exactly what Needham was saying. Uh You had like a PhD in what medieval history from Harvard or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by all of these incredibly intelligent people, but it seems like there's never a common denominator. Like everybody has their different opinions about this. And he used a phrase that some of us are saying, no, that's spot on because there's other ways of phrasing that, but also maybe it should be this, which was Mary Lynch and the postmortem rape. That's such a jarring phrase for it but some people were saying no that's correct that's what happened and then some people were saying well maybe it's post-mortem abuse of a corpse or uh, mutilation of a corpse like there's these newer phrases of course nowadays the biggest discussion so far has been intent and exactly what was it and you know Needham also said well of course he chose a woman like he had this power over them and that word intent is just so fascinating to me and that seems to be the hang-up right now yeah, yeah, I totally get that. And I feel like that was, you know, my intent as an author to give people like Paul Needham a place to share his perspective mm-hmm. without me saying, and I think that everything he said was wrong. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just being like, that's where my journalism kind of comes in, where, you know, there are places where I say things that I think where I kind of fall about one element of this or another because people really wanted me to like say that but I thought it was really important to show how the jury is out on a lot of these issues and that I think anyone claiming to be like I know the exact right thing I know you know every situation and here it is and if you disagree with me then you're this or that it's just ahistorical. It's in a, you know, it's, you know, you have to, again, the context of each individual, like, yeah. I don't. So Paul Needham is really upset about this Harvard book, right? Yeah. Um, but he didn't, before our conversation, he didn't know about like any of the other books. He knew about the one that's alleged at the Welcome Library made by the same person, but he didn't really know about any of the other ones. And so when he was talking about, say, like the woman, you know, of course it was a woman. He got psychosexual pleasure off of this, right? It's like there are plenty of them that were not women. <laughs> there yeah. are plenty of them that we don't know what sex they were. And, you know, but also to me, I don't feel comfortable being like, this person got psychosexual pleasure off of making this 
Unless I had like a diary where he said that, right? It's a leap to say something like that without having something really rock solid to base it on. In term, so so that's intent, right? That's the mm-hmm. issue of intent. Why, according to Nino, he did this. He got off on the power and like the like a sexual kind of element to it. I would never say that about mm-hmm. this. Because I do not feel comfortable going there with this. Um, Any sort of... There's almost no kind of big, you know, flags like that that you can hang on to with these books. I, you know, wish that there were. Wish that he said, like, these collectors were like, I did this for this reason. Wouldn't it be a great addition to my collection to do this and whatever? All I can do is try to come up with a reasonable backstory based off the evidence available or the trends that I see across the whole thing. But any any individual's like motivation is harder to like suss out, right? Absolutely. Now, impact is a different conversation. To me, the place where you have a lot more ability to kind of put yourself in somebody's shoes is, is what is the impact, right? Was mm-hmm. the impact of this act, right? He may not have had the intent to get some sort of psychosexual pleasure off of doing this. and But what was the impact of what he did to this woman's body? Like, that's a different question. I think these are important conversations to have. These are things Absolutely. that people can totally have debates about. They can agree that the people who made these, how they feel about the fact that they made them and stuff, all valid. Should that then lead to, and now we're going to do this to this historical object? That's a place I'm not like usually willing to go unless there are, again, like very specific things about this specific object where there's a clear path for sort of reparation of some kind, right? I ran a poll on the Morbidly Curious Book Club's Instagram story to get an idea of how many people, if done properly and ethically, would have their skin used for bookbinding. 25% of people said, sure, why not? 39% said, no way. 34% said it depended on the book. And 2% said, I'm on the wrong Instagram. You know, you think too, I was actually thinking about that today, where completely... I mean, it's on topic, but I was thinking about my book collection behind me and where stuff is going to eventually end up and what I'm going to have with me for years and years because I love collecting books as well and having my own personal library. It's like, too, what what did they kind of expect to happen with these books at some point, too? Like, was it just like a cool collectible? They're great, great, whatever would eventually have, you know, that too, taking that into account. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I think this is something that the boomers are learning to their dismay is that nobody wants your old stuff. It's sad but true. Nobody cares about it the way you care about it. It doesn't matter how cool it is. It doesn't matter how special it was to you. Nobody wants it. Um, And I mean, most of the time. And it's sad, you know, because you pour your whole life into these things you you pick them with care you know i do it too i have all of these you know signed it's not like i have many like very old books or very special books in that way but right. you know getting your book signed and you know having 
special totems from different times or friends artwork uh especially for me with the death positive people like i have an entire like death positive library basically of like signed books from everybody original art like all sorts of things like yeah i mean one of my favorite things one of those things where it's like i'm doing life right is like i'm on landis blair's like little like mailing list where he just sends me his like i just get his stuff and i'm like i love that kid by the way i think he's like the best guy ever but i just get landis's art all the time i have so much of landis's art i have it all over my like office and everything and it's just like a deep delight and joy for me right Right. but can i be at all sure even though he's read her a bedtime story when he came to visit can i be sure that when my kid is older that she's going to be like oh yes i know that this art was really special to mommy and it's the only one or it's the whatever or where else is it gonna go where's it gonna end up you know maybe maybe he gets like super famous but with art that's one thing with books it's even less likely right because you can't show it off the way that you show off a piece of art that's hanging on the wall right? right Not everyone can look at it and have some sort of reaction or experience to it when it's lined up on a shelf and it's closed, right? And so how many of these books ended up in the trash? I feel like a lot. I feel like a lot of it. Well, they they, didn't even realize. You wouldn't even know. If you were, like, a person who had to go through somebody's collection, like, oh, Grandpa died and now I'm going through his house. You just pack all those books away and you like dump them off at you know for donation or something or they end up in the trash and mm-hmm. it just looks like a regular old book you don't know right yeah. there's so many things that can happen to them even if you try to instill that sort of oh did you see that this is signed by this like i have some that i got signed by authors that die you know i have like howard zinn signed my people's history of the united states that's really special to me that he signed it before he died like i'm like really happy i have that if faced with your whole parents book collection are they gonna just take all the things and just right to the they're not even gonna look for signatures right not necessarily right. um so, so i know it is sad it is um and libraries do they do would a library care about a signed copy of probably not and they probably have a million of them and they don't have space and all this stuff so yeah a lot of things just end up not being as important to the next person yeah right yeah so obviously we don't know and we will never know what mary lynch would have wanted which is the worst part about this but again it's the artifact that we have now as far as on the other side of that coin the collector would they have even wanted this displayed or would they have wanted it to remain just in their family's possessions it's such a strange thing but now since they are out in the open and people know about it it's like well i mean what should we do and it's never going to be the same answer every time and i find that fascinating yeah it's like seeing the way that people's reactions or the answers being different change over time i think is really interesting and worth knowing about and the book is trying to get people to a know as much as we could about this practice and the individual books and the stories behind them Mm -hmm. because there's so many people attached to every book 
it even just kind of illuminates that like how many of the books that exist on your shelf like how many people touched it in some way like how many people were involved in the creation of that thing that's on your shelf is fascinating to me i did want to ask you on page 205 we're talking about you know how you collect special and even rare books um, on my own champagne taste with a beer budget level, which I, I laughed at. I pick up the occasional Folio Society style fancy modern edition, and I never buy paperbacks. <laughs> what is your hate with paperbacks? I'm oh my gosh! I love, a, I love a hardcover. <laughs> you are the first person to ever ask me that. See, that is why this is so lovely for me. You know, my book came out during pandemic, and I don't I've done a lot of Zooms and stuff like that, but the book clubs are so special to me um, because I don't get to talk to readers, like not in that way, right? I might tell people about the book and they may or may not go read it later, but to talk to people who've actually read it is a very different thing. And it's like the, all the things that have to happen for a book to exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that there are people out there, that I did this thing and somehow all the like planets aligned for it to even come to be. Right. And then there are people out there who are spending their like precious like <laughs> life <laughs> part of their life to like read it and interact yeah. with it blows my mind completely. I am so like grateful to every single reader. It's just like the biggest compliment that I can ever possibly like think of. Oh yeah. So paperbacks. So (laughs) one of the things I learned, this doesn't sound related, but it is, I swear. One of the things I learned when my book came out, um, so it came out in October, 2020. And uh, it's like deepest pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they told me, oh, hey, you got this book club, this fantastic Strangelings book club. Um, and they were all really excited. It was Jenny Lawson's book club. And then I had to, and they're like, we're going to send you, you know, things to sign in a box and then you have to send it back. And it was 1800 book plates. The box was huge. It took me like nights and nights. And it was so incredible that that many people were like ordering the book and going to read the book. And so, and I was just like, this is so great. Now, that ate up a huge, like, chunk of my print run, right? Like, because that all happened after the print run got set and whatever. And normally, this is excellent news. And they said, oh, it's going to go to second printing before it even prints. It's like, oh, great. But then they said, it'll be in the warehouse by Halloween. Also great. Then it didn't get to the warehouse until January. So, no Halloween, no you know, skin book under the Christmas tree or anything like that. There were no books available. So weirdly I published a rare book and it was so weird and so flattering and horrifying at the same time when I would see like people trying to get their hands on it. Mm -hmm. And then I would say there is an ebook. Right. Right. But (laughs) my, my people my readers did not want it. <laughs> they did not want that ebook. They're like, no, thank you, ma'am. I'm going to read about skin books in a paper book as a Dark Lord intended or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So, like, it was so interesting to me that it was like, oh, I really want to read this book 
to the point where I'll talk about it on Twitter or whatever, but don't you dare send me something to look at on the screen. I am not, not down. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it being during like peak pandemic, even more understandable mm-hmm. because we had to be on the screens like every second. Yeah. And of course you're not going to be like, Ooh, now to relax on this other screen. Like, no, I don't yeah, want to no. do that. Um, so I just, I, I found that really interesting and I kind of like, it was interesting to see that on a sort of mass scale about people's reading preferences and how it's like, you like what you like, right? And oh, yeah. you do it the way you do it. So for me, my particular little like way to do things, especially since I became a mom, I love audiobooks. It's like way easier for me to listen to things and whatever. And I feel very at liberty to like explore new genres in audio. I do a lot of fiction in audio Mm -hmm. uh, or sorry, nonfiction in audio. So it's like, I want to learn the thing. Audiobook. Definitely. Um, But if I'm reading like my precious like literary fiction that is in a hardcover book, I I just won't do it. Um, Yeah. I don't want a paperback because they're just not, if I'm physically buying a book, I want to keep it. Yeah. And I want, I want the artifact and I want the artifact to be as like pristine as I can. Some of these, I I actually like weeded my personal collection over the holiday break, which is a huge deal. And Mm -hmm. a lot of things I got rid of are things that I really like that I would like to keep around but that they were in crappy old like mid-century paperbacks that were, you know, if I open this, the spine's going to crack, disintegrate into confetti. And I'm sorry, Ibsen, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll catch you on the flip. I'll buy, if I want to buy it again, I'll go find, even if it's a newer hardcover that has yeah. at least a chance on my shelf. I got to get a hardcover. That's just my favorite. If I'm taking notes and tearing it up for book club, I it just lays open better. Like, I can reach it better. I can hate cracking a spine. I know this is audio, but I, I feel like I can talk about this while showing you something. I'm going to grab something real quick. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my God. The skeleton behind you just appeared out of nowhere. I don't know if you're going to edit this or not. She got up and there's a skeleton behind her. Editing patches here, Megan proceeded to show me these incredible editions of her book from different countries, and unfortunately, I cannot show you those visually on a podcast. So I will post the picture that Megan sent me on the Discord and also on the Patreon page. Everything on the Patreon at this point is free. If you would like to support the Patreon, it is just a way to support the book club in general. It is not recommended, but you totally can if you would like to. Okay, I think that's it. Let's continue the conversation. Because you do mention in the author's note, actually, in the very beginning, that a lot of these books could be just hiding in plain sight, and you wouldn't be able to tell if you were holding it. But you do mention later on, too, that sometimes, like, after a while, you kind of pick up the notion based on, like, the pores that maybe this might be human. Yeah, I mean, the pores, like, I feel like people, some people think that they can tell. (laughs) Um, but I don't think that that's really accurate. And honestly, so I just, I just took this class like in August, right? Mm -hmm. I had a scholarship for it, but I couldn't go because of pandemic and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I only just got to take it. So I, I did not get to benefit from the amazing knowledge that I got from this class. 
while writing the book. And so that was an interesting experience on a number of levels, but the uh, professor is the binding curator at the British Library, right? So did you know that was a job? Because I feel like she's the only one that exists to be like a curator for book bindings at a museum, like at a national library or whatever is incredible. That's so cool. So part of this experience was like closing a loop, but the other part of it, there was this sort of underlying little bit of dread of like, what if I find out that something I wrote in the book is not right? Oh no. Because of what I learned, what I'm learning now in a venue that I can't learn any other real way. Right. Right. And one of those things I was thinking about was the poor identification thing, right? Because you Mm -hmm. have people in the rare book world who say, I can look at this and tell you it's a goat, it's a sheep, it's a, you know, calf. What a skill. Yeah. (laughs) And I learned how to do it. I learned how to do it. And that was, (laughs) but guess what? It is not a hundred percent all the time. It is like, we would be in class with the like biggest expert there is. And they'd be like, "Mm, it, it might be, it might be goat, it might be shape. Like, it's really hard to tell if this grain pattern is not, like, staying up. Like, they did this, they put this thing on it, it's, like, not that clear, whatever. Hmm. So there were plenty of times where there was no consensus on what animal it was. Now, that is fine if the difference is between yeah. uh, a calf and a goat. It is not fine if the difference is between a human and a, yeah. and a sheep. Right. Like, that is not okay to stake your pre- professional reputation on or to put a price tag on. Mm-hmm. Right? So I felt, like, vindicated that it's hard. That mm-hmm. it's not it's not like, oh, that person just sucks at it and that's why they can't tell it's a human. Something. No, we need this. We need this testing. Yeah, it's like between pork and human. I think is like the closest together. Oh, interesting. So I would not personally ever feel comfortable, especially now that we have mm-hmm. a way of knowing to be like, oh yeah, poor identification is enough. I don't think it's enough. I I think what's different. You know, what I would be more interested in seeing eventually is, oh, do we get to um, to some other new way of, of, you know, scientific testing these come along that allow us to know, like, the biological sex of somebody or that kind of thing. I think that would be interesting. Or, like, we can tell it's from this, like, geographic area, something like that. That could be of interest. Since the book came out, some people have, you know, contacted me and being like, I'm going to do a project for school where I'm going to test all the books in our library. And I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, like, I really appreciate your pluck, but wow, that's like a lot of books to test. That would cost like a lot of money. It would take a lot of time. You're just testing everything just to see if maybe one book is... At least narrow it down a little bit. (laughs) It also doesn't have any like provenance like attached to it that would make you think that. I think it would be interesting... But I told the person, you know, this this is not just one person, but I remember telling one person about it, like, hey, make sure if you actually do this, like, and please tell me if you do, but if you actually do it, 
Mm-hmm. Like, keep track of all the animals that you do see, not just, is it human, yes or no? Like, if, right. it could be uh, another interesting kind of thing to say, oh, most of the books in this library or calf or most of them are goat or most of them are sheep or whatever that could be interesting to know for some reason yeah. um so just don't like narrow it just to human skin books and just be like we found zero skin books yeah probably you know uh but could it be interesting to know the mix of what you did find i don't know that said as we talked about all the things that you write in a book or whatever those it's things that were written in the book that give us any reason to test or believe in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my favorite books, but I say my in big air quotes, cause it's not mine. Uh, but at the institution where I now work, <laughs> my favorite books is this book that was allegedly human skin. And my team tested it before I worked there or anything. It has all of these notes inside from various people over the course of this book's life about it being human skin, where they think it came from, like, you know, the French Revolution, blah, blah, blah. All these, you know, it was in this library by, it was like the King Louis librarian, and then it went to this professor who's interested in medieval history, professor at UC Berkeley, like bought the book and then he donated it to the library and then it ended up at UCLA for some reason and all. Hmm. So it's got like a ton of information and <laughs> like right. way, way more than usual. I would be inclined to believe that the people who put the information in the book put it in there in good faith. They put it in there to like have... Like, oh, I want to make sure I write down which one of these is like, this is the human skin book and I can find that and check it or whatever. I'll write what I know about it in the book so that it's always with it and doesn't get lost and whatever. Okay, fine. And then fast forward, you know, it ends up in the library and at some point it gets put in a clamshell box to preserve the book. And that clamshell box, in order, again, to make it, like, easier to find, on the outside it has, you know, a short title, and then it says, parentheses, human skin binding. Uh, Because you very well likely would be, like, scanning to pull the book because people ask for it. You want to be able to find it and pull it out, and that's a useful thing to have. Right, right. Then we test it, and it's not human skin. So everything on this object is like the earnest attempts of people trying to give more information and being wrong. I love that about this. Sure. Like it's written on the online catalog that it's not human skin. We did a test. This is blah, blah, blah. But post-apocalyptic Los Angeles, you're (laughs) digging through the rubble and you find a box that says human skin binding. You pick it out. You're going to believe that's human skin. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Why would you not? So mm-hmm. I think that that is like really interesting and f- fun and fabulous about, you know, book history and our ways of knowing and the accumulation yeah. of knowledge over time. Like it's like this really interesting artifact for that alone. And how far we've come as far as being able to determine the yes and the no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I bet there are books that, yeah, got thrown in the trash. There are books that looked like an old book and had a secret that no one wrote in it, right? Mm-hmm. That person dies, 
they just put them all with the rest of the books and you'll never know i i definitely believe that to be true post the book's publication there was a couple of times where you said this hasn't been tested yet this would be awesome if we could test it this hasn't been tested yet this hasn't been tested yet has there been any updates since the book has been released and i know you did include a list of confirmed yeses at the end of books that are yes bound in human skin but have there been any other updates yeah so i mean book came out during pandemic everybody's closed down the special collections libraries and museums were closed longer than people might think they were right like the actual access to things and people being on site and not working remote and stuff like that i think they'd last a lot longer than people might assume or then other professions where you might have been you know working that where people had to physically go in Mm -hmm. and then when they come back their first thought isn't let's test our like (laughs) you know most controversial thing that's what we're gonna do to get back on track like I, i don't think so so in terms of testing these objects like these books in public institutions I've only recently maybe had like a bite and I don't want to I don't share that stuff until after someone gets a test result Mm -hmm. and they then sign a form about what and how much they're willing to share so if they get if they go through with the testing they'll be included in the anonymized list no matter what. So if it changes, then somebody actually went through with the testing. Like it's been recently discussed, but for the most part, that hasn't really been happening. Other testing has been occurring, but it's mostly been in like the private collector area or actual, like the anthropodermic book project. Like, you know, people have switched jobs, been retired. Right. You know, there's been a lot of things where we kind of put it on hiatus for obvious pandemic reasons. And then I'm sort of at this place with it of like, do I open the doors back up or not? You know, if so, what does the team look like? Do we need to get funding? Is there any Mm -hmm. actual interest in doing this or not? Right? Because there is something to say for there's like about 50 alleged on that list in the public institutions, way more in private, that there's something to be said for like, we got, you know, 18 or so (laughs) tested, or no, 30, we got like 31 tested of the 18 numbers, how many have been, like, confirmed. Mm-hmm. So we tested 30 out of a list of 50, which is not bad. And then some of those on those lists are never, ever, ever going to be submitted for testing. Absolutely not, for various reasons. And not necessarily mm-hmm. just we don't want to, and the PR things I was talking about, but, like, we have rules against never sampling anything for any reason. Yeah, yeah, you know, it somehow or yeah. So like, those are all legit. Um, and so, so the how big is the available pool in the public institution, and how big is the appetite of anyone to like put themselves out there in that way? So we'll see. But there are other things. Like the gen- more generalized idea of biocodicology and all that one can learn from it, you know, that part of the book is something I added like right at the end. It mm-hmm. was just 
starting, people were just starting to publish in that area. I think there's a lot of potential there. I wrote an article, it's open access, it's in the um, journal, the Medical Library Association about biocode ecology and like what are some of the opportunities in health sciences library collections that you could test things to find things out Mm -hmm. um, with some of these methods that I think are really interesting potential like future avenues for research if I decide to go down that road, you know? I'm working with some folks about like preservation related issues to the physical books about, you know, poison books Mm -hmm. in collections, like what to do about arsenic and other things um right you know it's like almost every book (laughs) yeah almost every 19th century book has a little bit of poison in it uh you know just a little how much does it matter i I think um my blanket recommendation there for anyone going into libraries to conduct research or whatever everyone knows you don't wear gloves you wash your hands everyone who actually goes in and does this right most people there's the whole why isn't she wearing gloves and gloves is not for you if you're doing book research unless it's something that can hurt you (laughs) or something that like photography where you can like ruin it by having your fingerprints on it you're supposed to wash your hands and dry them and then do your research um your fingers you can actually turn the page a lot better yeah i learned that recently to grip, right? So this is one of those things that you know if you do this, but you wouldn't know otherwise. And mm-hmm. it's a, a widely held public misconception because of pictures they see and things they see on TV of people holding artifacts and things with gloves on. Which, you know, some artifacts you should wear gloves, but we're talking books here and they're made to be <laughs> handled. Now, what changes, though, in the light of what we're discovering about all these bindings and all the like, cadmium and arsenic and all the things that are in there, everyone always told me to wash my hands. No one ever told me to wash my hands after. Oh, no. So my little PSA for everyone is wash your hands after. Like, don't go to lunch. <laughs> you get like, sick? What happened? It, well, I'm, no, I'm not saying you'll get sick, but... You're touching thing. You're touching old books that have known carcinogens on their like covers. It is not a bad practice to then wash your hands before you eat, um, or just when you're done in general. Uh, so I always had it in my head of like I'm washing my hands to protect the book. I wasn't really thinking I'm washing my hands to protect myself. That's what I would say. Because so treat artifacts like peppers and. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, you make that mistake one time, right? (laughs) So it's funny that you mentioned that too, because you had a great piece of advice that I also highlighted. Never stick your hand somewhere you can't see. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? It's so funny. Uh, My kid's birthday party was this weekend, and we had a magician. And uh, he told her to reach into a box, and she like looked in and then reached. And I was like, that's my girl. (laughs) Yes. I was like, I didn't even tell her to do that. She just like, it was like epigenetically like infused into her. So yeah, I mean, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that if you touch these books and you don't wash your hands that you're going to, something's going to happen to you. I'm just saying not a bad idea in general. To wrap it up, are there any other books in the works? Hmm. So 
when we started talking earlier and I talking in the beginning about like my early, you know, days as a child of learning to like love writing, um, and how I quickly abandoned fiction. Um, part of me kind of wants to dabble in fiction. Yeah, me. Oh my. I've gotten okay. a little bit of encouragement on that li- along that line, but if anything comes to it, it'll take a really long time for me to get there. But I, there are a lot of little odds and ends and bibs and bobs and things that I would love to see in a book a, that I've never really seen. And so what I've been mm-hmm. doing is trying to find out if I'm right about that or I just don't know about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... I've been like taking my absolute sweet time just reading different things in different genres and getting a feel for stuff like, you know, does this exist? Is there an audience for what I'm doing? Has someone already really done this thing the way Mm -hmm. I would have wanted to do it? Um, Is there something I can do that? And again, this was actually also the thing that was an impetus for this book that I sort of uh, touched on, which was, I don't want to do it unless someone else hasn't done it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, is it adding anything to, because of, especially now that I know what it takes and all the things that go into it and what it means for people to, you know, use their brain, for you to get to invade someone's brain in this intimate Mm -hmm. way by reading, by them reading your book. Right. I want it to be worth their time, right? I want it to be something that that um, isn't just, oh, this is, you know, reminds me all Like, th- there's influences, but I want it to be something that's like, oh, this is like a singular thing. This is right. not, you know, and whether that thing is your thing is another thing, but <laughs> I think it's like your own, yeah, am I doing something that hasn't been done? Putting something new into the universe that would be worth existing so it's possible i could just never get to it fully it's possible that i could do it and just keep it to myself and someone will find it in a drawer somewhere we'll put it in a book somewhere and it'll get passed down and right on display and (laughs) it's like or you know or it could happen i don't know but i think you know thus far i feel like i've seen some things and read some things I like that are interesting, but I haven't quite come across somebody doing exactly what I've been considering. So that seems positive, at least. Yeah, I love that. It's so mysterious. It is. I'm trying to be really super vague. <laughs> Good. <laughs> getting, like, what if I say, oh, it's going to have this element to it, and then that comes out, like, that gets thrown out in the process and then people are like but what about the book about the blah blah (sighs) so it's still it's still such a nothing burger that i won't um do that but i will say that i took a little workshop fiction first ever fiction workshop with a writer amber sparks and i was like trying to get my ideas together and i heard something like you know current status all vibe uh, no plot, all vibes, yeah. right? And she said, well, actually, like, gothic fiction or, you know, things like kind of spooky fiction. It's like, 
the gothic in general is all vibes and the plot is secondary (laughs) like and i was like that actually makes me feel a little better um you know, because my plot is so ill-formed, it's just all these, like, moments in my mind, but not really a through line. Yeah, when she said, actually, the most important thing is the vibe, I'm like, okay, that I can work with. Whatever else you write next, you have a whole book club of people <laughs> who are going to be buying it day one, I guarantee you that. Thank you guys for tuning in to this incredible episode with Megan Rosenblum of the Dark Archives book. If you are interested in joining the Morbidly Curious book club, which I would highly suggest, the link is going to be in your description below. You can also find us on Instagram at the Morbidly Curious book club. And if you would like to support this podcast, check out the link below as well to see how you can support. Stay safe out there, stay curious, and don't stick your hands in dark places.